You're listening to Slow Theology, Simple Faith for Chaotic Times, with A.J. Swoboda and E.J. Gupta. We're excited to continue with our series on uh, that we're launching on the Lord's Prayer. So if you haven't listened to the previous episode, A.J. and I started off by talking about prayer in general and talking about the Lord's Prayer as a great place to turn to when you're feeling kind of lost in your faith and you want to kind of reconnect with the biblical tradition, the Christian tradition. It's a uniting prayer. It's a classic prayer from the mouth of Jesus. So go back and list the episode as kind of the foundation for what we're going to talk about. We're going to be journeying through several episodes going line by line through the Lord's Prayer. If you haven't listened to our previous series from maybe last year, Uh, slow creed. This will be kind of parallel. We're kind of doing a little bit of catechesis here. And so go back and listen to that as well. But I want to start off by just going to the beginning of Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, which is the most well-known, Our Father, who art in heaven, or which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I want to throw this to you, AJ. I think it really matters how we address God, not because God's super picky that we get his name exactly right. We talked about that last time where Greek and Roman gods were really uptight about how their names were used. I think of like Voldemort from Harry Potter, like don't say his name. But with our God, I think it's really important when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. So let's just start with those first few words, that the very first things that come out of Jesus' mouth are our Father. What theological and spiritual significance do you tie to how Jesus chose Mm. to open his teaching on prayer? Yeah. So, so, um, so when, when I see this prayer, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name Two immediate, um, at least those first two words, our father, two things pop out at me have, have a weight to them. Mm. The first is the use of, Pater, Father, the, the right. use of this familial um, imagery of of a of a dad, of a father, of a papa, um, uh, fifteen times at least in my count, fifteen times in the Sermon on the Mount, so Matthew five, six, and seven, fifteen distinct times in which mm. God is called Father by Jesus. Um, that you have uh, this is a very intimate word used in an almost rapid fire way in mm. the Sermon on the Mount. So this is not just a language that is important for prayer. The image of father simultaneously connects to, you know, how the Christian lives an ethical life um, yeah. that we live under the life of uh, life of a father. So, you know, it's, it's an odd image. I remember years ago um, reading, it was when it first came out this this little book by uh, Donald Miller called blue like jazz. It was, right. it was like, man, it hit like crazy. Um, and I, I still remember where I was when I read his section on how awkward he felt about the image of father, father, God, largely given that he had a pretty paltry father himself. And the image didn't really make a whole lot of sense to him to, to think of God as a father. And so if, I think for some of us, it may feel uncomfortable to talk about God as a father, but it's simultaneously a healing reality because God is, as the prophets often say, the God of the fatherless. He is the one who sure. sort of makes, who can who can be the stand-in when our earthly fathers weren't, weren't there. But I think that the second one is our, uh, the use of our here. There's a really big storyline in the Bible about 
um, talking God, either God talking in terms of plural hours or, or, or humans referring to the we or our regarding to the, the relationship to God. So for example, in Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28, when God creates the universe and creates the humans in the garden, he says, let us make man in our image. Yeah, yeah. Um, so God uses our pronouns about our, him. so the, right, the humans are created by a community. Um, and mm-hmm. as such, humans need community. So we are created by a community, the Father, the Son, and Spirit, and therefore need right. community. But simultaneously, how often the storyline of the Bible captures this kind of the human hour. I think, for example, of the way Luke tells his account in the book of Acts. How many times does Luke use the language of we or us or our to, as a way of describing their experience of the Holy Spirit? There's th- Here's the point. I think this confronts much of our individualistic tendencies. Mm-hmm. And that the prayer, our Father in heaven, almost requires that we recognize we do not come to God alone. Right. We we come with the whole community of God, be it living or dead, who have been following Jesus from history to now, and and that we approach God as a community. And as such, if we're gonna if we're gonna love God, the way in which we treat human beings directly relates to how we will treat and talk to God. Yeah. So we mirror that to God. So I, our and Father to me have always had a lot of um, depth and meaning uh, in this. So for you though. I mean, give give me a little history or a little backstory on the significance of, you know, talking about God with such familial terms, like talking about God as a father yeah. to me in an ancient world where gods were very disconnected, dis- mm-hmm. like separate, separate. They didn't want to really engage with humans. They were aloof. Right. Right. I mean, how, what would this have sounded like in the ancient world to have God described in such profoundly intimate terms? Yeah, that's just it. You know, if you um, if you go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapter 5, Matthew, this is Lord's Praise in chapter 6, um, the Beatitudes uses such familial language, right? Then you'll be children of God. Then you'll, you know, they'll inherit the earth. Jesus paints a picture of life with God as one of familial belonging. Mm. And that just would, that would be comfortable in a Jewish environment where you have the Jewish covenant. And the covenant is a family covenant, right? I will be like a father to him and he will be like a son to me, he says, of the king and, and the king is representative of the nation. But Jesus cranks that up another level to a form of intimacy where we get the language of Abba, right? Abba is used only a few times in the New Testament. It's used in the Gospel of Mark. It's used in Galatians. It's used in Romans. It's meant to indicate this very personal relationship mm. with God. I remember listening to a preacher, this was like 20 plus years ago, and he was talking about how he had little, very little kids, and this guy, this preacher's name is Stephen, and his, one of his daughters, who was probably six or seven or eight years old, came to him and said, can I call you Stephen? <laughs> and he got, immediately he got a little offended, but he's like, you know, why do you want to call me Stephen? They're like, well, everybody else calls you Stephen, we won't call you Stephen too. He says, but only you can call me father. Like there's, mm. there's the special privilege that you have. Anyone can call me Stephen. And Stephen is, you know, there's nothing really special about that except, you know, yeah, that's my name. But, but because of my special relationship with you kids, you can call me father. Yeah, right. and, and, and don't we see that? I mean, we, we see that in the intimacy of Jesus' relationship with the father in the prayers that Jesus gives. 
yeah. in the ways that he kind of speaks on behalf of his father. Like, I can convince God to do this for you because yeah. he has this really, really close relationship. Now, you, you're asking me to compare it to Greco-Roman religion. Yeah, very different. There are lines you don't cross in Greek and Roman religion. And here's something really interesting, AJ, I've noticed is in Greek, Greek and Roman religion, you knew the gods by their names. Mm-hmm. And you would beseech them by their names. But Jesus never uses a personal name for God. Like 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 a like a name. He uses titles, but not Yeah, a name. he uses titles. Yeah. He doesn't say like, let me introduce you to my father Henry. You know, it's, yeah. it's not yeah. you know the gods were known by their names, which usually stood for something strong, great, some moral attribute something about being courageous or tough or whatever. And yet the father is just known as the father. Like we don't, even today when we pray to the father, we we don't pray to someone with a very specific name that we use like Stephen. We pray to God as father. I think the sentiment that's being expressed there is anytime you think about God, think about God as a caring and protecting parent. We, we, we have different frameworks for our relationships, right? And so we could conceive of God. Some people conceive of God as killjoy, right? Mm, mm. Some people conceive of God as judge. Mm, right. Um, some people conceive of God as maybe teddy bear or like genie in the bottle that gives me stuff. But this is how Jesus wanted us to see God, to yeah. see God as father. And, and that's over and against the fear that one would have towards the Greek and Roman gods whom you just wanted to keep at bay and, and keep peaceful coexistence with those gods. You wanted to get stuff from them while keeping them at a distance because you're worried about what could happen to you if you didn't. Right. T- tell me about this. Okay. So when I see this, when I see Jesus teaching his disciples to pray, mm-hmm. he he's obviously the, the whole Sermon on the Mount is set up with Jesus um, going up on this mountain to teach, yep. he sits mm-hmm. down, which is a very rabbinic, very yes. rabbinic language of sitting to instruct. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, you, you know this isn't the the first time in the Bible that a, a good teacher has gone up to a mountain to receive something right. from God. So this is a th- this is mosaic imagery. Yes, here. exactly. So, so when Jesus goes up and teaches, sits down, and he's teaching them how to pray. When when I read this prayer. It feels to me like Jesus is speaking to the Father with the disciples. Like it's mm-hmm. almost like he's identifying with them and teaching them to pray as though he is uh, among them. And I can't help but wonder if this is just a little tiny signpost of Jesus's high priestly role of yes. being a human oh, yeah. with the humans, speaking to the Father among the humans. Like Hebrews, mm-hmm. right, talks about Jesus being our brother. Like he is saying this prayer with us. Yes. Now I now I can't think of any other religion where God prays to God. Yeah. And includes his community in his conversation with God. I just I get the sense, and tell me if I'm wrong, that this is really tapping into Christ's willingness to be fully enmeshed in the disciples. Um, before the Father, am, am I am I onto something there? 
Well, the church fathers actually struggled with this, AJ, for the very reasons that you're saying that Jesus seems like he's identifying too much mm, with us sinful mortals because he says, lead us not into temp- temptation, but deliver us from evil as if Jesus is going to fall into temptation. Yeah. As if Jesus is going to succumb to temptation. But you and I, <laughs> maybe dangerously, have argued that for Jesus to take the risk of becoming human, he had to come right up to the edge. Yeah. Of the dangers of the sinfulness that we experience. Now he's not sinful, but he's tempted in every way. Like you were, you were referencing, alluding to Hebrews, the high priestly stuff. But for Jesus to say, "Lead us not temptation, deliver us from evil," we're st- we're supposed to go back in Matthew to the temptation narrative. Yes, where Jesus is tempted, and then go forward into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays that his dis- disciples not be tempted. Mm-hmm. And so we're meant to put all these things together to say he's actually not teaching himself how to pray. He's not yeah. he's not teaching other god men. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's not like this class of god man that he's he's teaching mortals how to pray. Yeah. But he has to stoop down to our level to do it. There's a mystery in there on how he can be fully immersed in humanity without being sinful. Yeah, he's coming he's coming to our level. A good parent would do this. Like yeah. when 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 my son, you know, wanted to learn it's so we're still learning how to do it, but when he wanted to learn how to do uh he could do a right-handed layup. It was the left-handed layups yeah. that were the most difficult. And get just getting the rhythm, which I'm not a master at, but at least I I know how to fake it. Like show like getting down there with them in on the court and doing it with them is is I mean, we're we're made to imitate somebody, so we're mm-hmm. we're created to model ourselves after somebody that that we are we are watching. Jesus is taking on a fully human role, pr- proclaiming to the Father, our Father, on our behalf with us. Um, yeah, I actually in my own, uh, I remember years ago reading some writings from one of the early church fathers, Cyprian of Carthage, who yeah. there was this huge debate as to whether. Um, we should we should act, that the early church wanted to u- utilize this language of our father, and he mm. went toe to toe with the church, saying, like the minute we stay that he said, "My father," we we completely miss the right. the intent of Jesus being with us, um, and and it would just be basically humans watching rather than humans participating. Yeah, absolutely. Let let's talk about in heaven. I feel like there is a misstep we can take because my view of God growing up was, especially before I was a Christian, was that God is just distant, far away, kind of like a Gnostic view, kind of the deist. He's just he's just out there and doesn't care about me. So I think if I would have heard as like a 15-year-old, our father in heaven, I would think he's on Mount Olympus. Hmm. He's far away. And therefore, I shouldn't bother him. So I would actually probably fall into a misunderstanding Mm. of why we know God as our Father in heaven. Yeah. How would you help correct that misunderstanding that in heaven is the sense of distance? It's clearly doing something else for Matthew and for Jesus. So where do you go with that? Because yeah. Jesus is being very intentional in every word. Yep. So how is that framing and shaping how we think of God? Well, just just to be sure, sh- sh- sure. But my earliest misunderstanding of this was I always thought Jesus was a painter, 
um, or an artist because he always says, uh, "Our Father whose art is in heaven." Yeah, yeah, the art thing I, always got I me. Always too. got that. Like that. Always. <laughs> like I thought, oh Jesus, the painter, like Bob, the you know, he just has this. He has all this awesome paint in heaven. That these paint jobs in heaven. Well, you know, so so the pro- one one of the problems with reading the Bible when you come across a word like heaven is we often fail to recognize that there there's not just one heaven. There's multiple heavens in the in the Bible. So. For an example, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When when it's referring to heavens there, right, it's not referring to the abode of God where God is. It's referring to the stuff that's up. So it's yeah. referring to the sky. It's referring to the the space in which the birds fly. It's referring to, you know, where the clouds are, where the water comes from. Um, and so the heavens are are up. And we can't, we shouldn't conflate that with our Father in heaven because the, the sense of heaven I don't think is as much up as much as it is the domain in which yes. God rules and reigns wherever that, that is. I love that. Which which is why when we when Jesus would preach the kingdom he would say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What mm-hmm. what, he, what that phrase at hand was was sort of an an idiom meant to indicate that it's here. Yeah, yeah. It's right here right now. It's not up. Uh it's not uh it's not down. It's it's here wherever yeah, yeah wherever you are. So to say our father in heaven, I would caution us against thinking that means our father is up on Pluto or something. Yeah. Far, far away. Yeah. It's our father in heaven is wherever heaven is, which is the place where God rules and reigns, the domain Mm -hmm. of God's rule and reign. That's where heaven is. And so if you're a disciple, right, and you're seeking to follow Jesus and bend your life to the ways of Jesus, what that means is you're walking around in heaven all the time. Heaven mm-hmm. is at hand. It's with us here, present yeah. now. Do we see it fully manifest now? No, we don't see it. Um, but we are beginning to inaugurate our lives into it and and begin to initiate, you know, our, our full existence, being baptized in the life, the life of heaven. So we want to be careful. I think what I'm trying to say is we want to be very careful of thinking about this in geographical or dimensional terms. Spatial. Yes. Yeah. It's less spatial and it's more um wherever it is that God rules and reigns. That yeah. is heaven. Yeah, I, I like that. And, you know, when we have spoken together at events, I've talked about kind of as another dimension, because a dimension can be invisible and maybe imperceptible sometimes to our senses, and yet can be very close and parallel. Right, right. I think it's kind of like that. But one way that this language of in heaven has been framed for me that's really helpful is when G, when the prayer goes on to say, on earth as it is in heaven. Yes. Just what like you're saying, this kind of alignment between the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of earth, right? One thing that's helped me is whenever I feel like the world is hopeless with all the problems going on, politics, uh, ecology issues, corruption, all that stuff, it's actually comforting to know there is a perfect place yes. with God. Yes. Because I'm one of these people that I get into bouts of despair, just like the, the, I just have to stop watching the news. It's just too much. It's Mm. too much bad. And I just feel it all. It's like suffocating me. And it's helpful to remember Matthew portrays heaven, not as, you know, this, you know, cloudy, cloudy place filled with light, you know, at the end of Harry Potter or whatever. It's, just like you were saying, I've heard someone uh, define the kingdom of God as the place where God's will is done. Yes. Right? Which, you know, obviously comes from Lord's Prayer as well. 
So when I think of our Father in Heaven, it's hard for us to imagine perfect versions of things here because we're only used to seeing corrupted versions, whether it's politics or medicine or whatever, relationships. But to know there is a perfect. The perfect doesn't have to be like absolute perfect, but it's it's morally perfect. Yeah. Right? It's more to know that the morally perfect exists gives us hope. Yeah. Right? It gives us hope that it could be claimed here. Yeah. And so as much as our fathers, you know, your father, AJ, my father, we have different experiences of our fathers. Some have really good fathers, some have mediocre fathers, some have not great fathers. But the idea of father in heaven means we shouldn't associate that father with the the mortality and the flaws of our earthly fathers. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's not a diss on our earthly fathers. I'm a father. You're a father. We try. <laughs> Lord knows we try. But idea of the father in heaven, I've now come to learn it doesn't mean he's distant, far away, doesn't care. It means he is actually empowered yeah. where he is. Right. He's in the control center. I love to think about that. He's in the control center. Yeah, he's the mayor. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And he can give us resources from where he stands in heaven that we don't have here on earth. Yeah. I think that's a really cool way to think about it. Yeah. Before we go into this last section, um, I, I just a just a cool little little thing to point out is that that I often find that people people that experience the most difficult human experience that their embodied down to earth life is the most difficult tend to be the ones that long the most for heaven. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that those whose lives are kind of cushion awesome tend to see their life as heaven. And so they don't long for anything after this one. I illustrate this in one of my classes. I, I have my students when we are reading through the book of Exodus, I have my students read hymns written by slaves in the early American uh, yes. Uh, period. And what what yes. you find is first, the the Bible was everything to these slaves. And if you're going to deconstruct the Bible, you're you're literally robbing the hope of the slaves. Mm-hmm. I mean, their their hope was found in the fact that God was seeking to restore, redeem, and free them. But secondly, how much they talk about heaven in these psalms, these yeah. these songs, and and this longing because, as you're saying, this can't be it. Mm-hmm. It just can't be it. And if you're going to say this is heaven, there's nothing after this. Well, then heaven is merely good for the privileged and the happy. And, yeah. if, and if there is no heaven beyond this, what what horrible news for the slave? Right. What horrible news for the sexually trafficked? What horrible yeah. news for the abused? If this is the best it gets, that's the worst news ever. So thank, thank, thank God we have this, this sense of longing for not only a future rule and reign of God where all will be made right, but that that this right here in 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 the full present isn't all of heaven right now. There's there's more to come. Let's let's talk about that that last phrase yeah. um, that, that we're tackling today, which which goes, um, "Hallowed be your name." Now, let me give my take, yeah, and then I want to yeah. hear what I want to hear what you. What you yeah. I can't not connect this to the third commandment, mm-hmm. which is. I'm the Lord your God. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Yeah, yeah. Respect now, God's name. You're respecting the holiness of God's name. I remember when I was in seminary meeting the first time, meeting a Christian who, whenever they wrote a paper or wrote on a whiteboard, they would not write out God's name. They would put mm. a G dash and a D. 
It's the first time I'd ever seen this. And I asked this, I asked this friend of mine, I said, why, why do you do that? Why don't you write God's name? And, and, and his point was, it was a signal to him himself. It was a, it was a reminder that God's name is so holy. You never want to say it because you might accidentally missay it, or you might say it with the wrong, the, <coughs> excuse me. Right, right. We don't sneeze Bless often you. in this podcast, but no. when we do, it's glorious. Um, <laughs> He didn't want, you know, he didn't want to misuse the the name of the Lord, and right. and the third commandment, uh, which is which is do not miss the misuse the name of the Lord. I, am I correct in in seeing connections between this and that? Yeah, I mean, name names were important, and and we want to respect that, but it goes beyond just a name. It's someone's reputation, right? Honor honor God's reputation, and I link it to how God will be praised or cursed based on how his people behave, mm. right? So if it is hallowed be thy name, we're saying, what we're saying when we pray is, I want to I wanna be team, team Yahweh, team God, and I want to bring only good things to your name. And woe is me if I bring bad things to your name. So the apostle Paul says in Romans, um, quoting from the Old Testament, all day long, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of us. Meaning, people aren't going to come to the Lord if God's people are acting like darn That's dirty exactly sinners. Right. Yep. And so, I love nostalgia to some degree, but I don't like translating it as Hallowed. Um, I know that's old-timey and people don't like letting go of that, but it's the idea is for us to honor God's name and all that's associated with his name as holy and yes. special. Yes. So this is actually a critique of Christian culture where we don't take seriously being people of integrity and upright living and reflecting the best of our tradition. Mm. This is this is a, this should be a daily prayer reminder that what I say and do represents God, God to the world. Yes. yes. And important. Yeah. When, whenever keep in mind. My, my wife uh, Quinn, who who may be listening right now, um, w- when she um, talks about the Ten Commandments, I love that she describes the Ten Commandments as uh, God's ten best ways, <laughs> and uh, it's just a beautiful way to describe this. But her 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 take on this, and I I just learned to trust that she's always right. Her her take on this is um, that the the impetus behind both that commandment and this this hallowed be your name is humans are very prone in their broken, sinful nature. We're very prone to misuse somebody's name for the wrong purpose. Mm. I, so I, I had a, an instance once where a student of mine was running around telling other people that I had said something in class uh, uh-huh. about an assignment um, that wasn't true. <laughs> right. and, and they were using my name, and basically a bunch of students got Fs on the assignment. <laughs> Uh-oh. Because because the student was using my name and saying, no, Dr. Swoboda says this. Yeah, yeah, and of yeah. course, I never said it. But really what they were using is they were using my name to get out of an assignment. Yeah, yeah. Is the That's misuse, dangerous. Yes, it's the misuse of somebody's name mm-hmm. for a personal purpose. And my, my wife, Quinn, always says that misusing God's name and, and not reflecting the, the hallowedness of God's name, as, as, is, as is being taught here, is are those moments when we... Put God's name on right. our agendas. 
Yeah, there's a flippancy to that, yes. isn't there? Yeah, a, yeah. A, a casualness that is inappropriate. Um, like when our kids sign us up for something and we haven't agreed to it, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I, one thing I think of, and I know we're in wrap-up mode here, one thing I think of is the question when we pray, what are we hallowing most? What, what do we treat as most holy? And we have to actually think of the alternatives because I think that's what the prayer is doing. Hallowed be your name. And in this case, it's it's who you are, God. Hallowed be your name and not. There, mm. There's a kind of unspoken and not. Hallowed be your name and not money. Mm. Hallowed mm. be your name and not this relationship. Or comfort or security. Or politics. Or my following or politics. I think it'd be worthwhile to sit down and write out, what do I hallow? And what does hallow mean? Set apart is the most special, important thing, mm-hmm. right? P- pour all of my hopes and dreams onto this. Yeah. And every day we should be praying, hallowed be, holy is your name and not yeah. my name yes. or my boss or the what I covet. Right. So this prayer is not just a give me things, give me things, Father. It's not just a gimme, gimme, gimme. It's a, I think this is something that we're going to come back to a lot in our talks on this. It's a f- deeply formative prayer. It's forming our heart. Yes. It's forming our yeah. soul, our spirituality to want the things. It's like that prayer, God, I believe, help my unbelief, right? God, I hallow you. Help me get away from the things I mishallow. <laughs> yes, right. It's that sort of prayer that comes with, once we say our Father in heaven, we have to say, I need to be just committed to you, only mm-hmm. you. Right, yes. And, and and not to the other things I'll be tempted to hallow. All right, so Nije, in our next one, we're going to look at the next little section. Great insights here on prayer. I look forward to the next conversation. Thanks for listening. Slow theology, uh, rate if this has been helpful. Thanks for being here. Grace and peace, everybody.